Zarevsky's study of focuses on presidential rhetoric and the power of definition. So in a way, Zarevsky sort of calls out George Edwards, who conducted research on the presidential campaign's inability to move and influence the public support. He moves beyond this basic assumption that um, Edwards possessed and basically says, hey man, you're one of the few that would argue that messages have no effects at all. I disagree strongly. Your research is absurd and contradictory, and here's why. So he answers these three questions. How do we understand the nature of presidential rhetoric and its effects? What does presidential rhetoric do? And how do we know? He explains that the definitions of presidential rhetoric and effects understood by many is very limited in scope, and that's what makes it difficult for us to understand presidential rhetoric. So there are three factors that complicate our understanding of presidential rhetoric. And of those factors are the following. Attitudes aren't always changed by an individual message. There are several attitude changes, um, which consists of replacement of an attitude with another one, reinforcement of a position, modification of a belief, changes in perception, and differences in interpretation. The effect of messages on audiences is only one dimension, along with the relationship between speaker and text, and taking the text as a point of departure. He defines audience as media and other politicians. So speaking of the effect on audience, presidential rhetoric defines social reality. So naming a situation provides a basis for understanding and determining a response. So because of his prominence, the president has the ability to shape how events and messages are viewed by the public. This leads us to framing widely used throughout politics as a method to influence audience. So the president, through framing, may highlight certain elements of a situation and obscure others that um, don't work in his favor and that don't make his position look, um, look well. So, for example, we can also relate this concept back to the 2016 elections when Trump attempted to convince voters through his rhetoric that we were in an era of loss. For instance, his campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, invites people to remember a time when we had something that is now gone. So through his successful techniques, people were more likely to take a risk on an outsider, someone with no previous political affiliation or experience as a president of the U.S. And this goes back to the presidential rhetoric mentioned on page 610 by Zarevsky, stating that rhetoric is far more likely to to suggest possibilities and issue invitations than it is to determine outcomes. From this information, what seemed to be the icing on the cake and further improved my understanding of the concept of rhetoric was William Riker's here aesthetic. Describe presidential definition as the art of structuring the world so you can win. And I believe that this is a process of framing exactly. This is exactly what this uh, what this quote describes. So along with framing, there are ways presidents can and have exercised their power of definition. They can create associations with terms. For example, as mentioned in the article, uh, September 11th was defined as war by linking it to attributes that which are present in war. This, as a result, extends the reach of the term. Another method in which presidents exercise their power is through dissociation. This is breaking a concept down to identify and shed light upon the more favorite parts. An example of this dissociation is in case study six involving Lyndon Johnson, who redefined equal opportunity to embrace equal outcome, not just chances. He used the metaphor of a handicapped runner in a foot race to describe the plight of minorities trying to succeed in America. So he was able to distinguish between apparent and real equal, equal opportunity. So what was interesting was the fact that he never used the term affirmative action, but he spelled out those needs for the special special treatment, which can be achieved through affirmative action. So throughout this um Throughout his process, he engaged in dissociation by taking a single concept, dividing it into aspects, and as the article says, equating the antagonist's position with the dispreferred term and one's own with the preferred term. That was the real over the apparent, which is why I think it was so successful. 
Another way presidents exercise their power of definition is by identifying a situation with condensation symbols. So condensation symbols are useful in shedding importance on an ambiguous situation because people can highlight different areas, but they can reach the same um, conclusion through that term. So for example, when you take the word freedom, which has a positive um, resonance, but means different things to different people, just like you have religion. And so those words, they can mean different things to different people, but at its core, you know, they all have just one um, particular meaning. So the power of the definition is its ability to condense divergent emotional reactions. So Zarevsky says that we need to know more about whether there are factors associated with a successful or unsuccessful exercise of the power of the presidential definition. And I agree with this statement and find it especially significant to presidential speech performances because I feel as though there are uh, fundamental elements that contribute toward a great persuasive speech that can greatly impact audiences. So at the end, I'm left with the question of if public opinion polls and surveys of audience responses can't accurately measure the effectiveness of presidential definitions, what can measure it?